I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I saw a film today, oh boy. Come and show me the magic. Can I take you out to the picture? Well, I hope you'll come and see me in the movie. Scene of your Hollywood song. Hello and welcome to the Beatles Films Podcast. I'm Matt Looker. I'm Ed Williamson. We're both professional film writers and Fab Four fans and normally each week we discuss a different movie about starring or inspired by the Beatles but we're here this time with a very special bonus episode about a specific Beatles film adjacent subject. To mark the 50th anniversary of Live and Let Die, one of the most successful and certainly most popular Bond themes of all time, written to order by Paul and Linda McCartney, we thought we'd take a deep dive into the origins of the song and explore the various connections between the Fab Four and 007 along the way. And to help us with the discussion, we have invited a very special guest and good friend onto the podcast, journalist and recognised Bond expert Neil Alcock. Hi, Neil. Hello. Uh, Neil, would you be so kind as to let our listeners know some of your credentials as the Bond expert? Yeah, presumably I've got to justify uh, why I'm here, because this is a prestige podcast. We need to make sure everyone realises that we haven't just got our mate from the pub. Sure. Okay. Um, I have some James Bond socks. (laughs) Uh, And as you can see, uh, this is not very good audio material, but I am wearing some Live and Let Die themed socks. Very nice material. That's all we need to know. Is that good enough? (laughs) Okay. Uh, Yeah, I do have other credentials, which are that... um, uh, I have been a Bond fan for a really, really long time. Like most um, men, I got into it when I was a kid, watching the films with my dad. Uh, and that never really went away. Uh, was got to the point where I talked about Bond so much that people just stopped listening. So I felt like I had to write about it online. 
So I started a blog and I wrote a lot about James Bond on my blog, which was called The Incredible Suit. And as part of The Incredible Suit, I started a project called Blog Along a Bond, where I got loads of bloggers to kind of join in and talk about a different Bond film each month. This is a long time ago now. This is I remember the... it very clearly. Yeah, yeah. Yes, this yeah. is in the run up to Skyfall. So Ed was... and I were very in- involved in that. Well, you I were. say very involved in it. We were, <laughs> we were... <laughs> I, I yeah. very involved. I, I think I read one or two of them. Yeah. We were occasional contributors. Yeah. Um, so that was fun, and that led on to um, some work for other websites like um, Film 4 and Virgin that I wrote for, and then eventually got into writing for Empire Magazine. So I've reviewed some Bond films for uh, Empire Magazine, and um, done some podcasts for people like Radio 1, and so on and so forth. Uh, and I think the highlight of all of that was... In 2015, I got to go to the set of Spectre for Empire Magazine in Mexico to watch yeah. them filming the um, pre-credit sequence, which was really exciting. Yeah, I can imagine. And you've you've met a few Bonds in your time as well, right? You've interviewed a few Bonds, yeah. at least half of them. Uh, uh, I've I I met Pierce Brosnan once in a very awkward encounter, <laughs> which was a, a, not a professional circumstance. It was very much a fan-based circumstance. Well, now it makes it sound like you stalked him. Yeah, yeah. I did stalk him a little bit. And you he, ambushed him in a sandwich shop. That's correct, yeah. yeah. And he was uh, he was not that impressed. Anyway, I did interview him on a, a separate occasion later for Empire Magazine, but I chose not to mention the sandwich shop incident in case he connected to me. I'm surprised he didn't remember it. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I've interviewed Timothy Dalton, I've interviewed Roger Moore, and I have interviewed Daniel Craig twice for Skyfall and Spectre. Uh, amazing. Excellent Bond credentials. Thank you. Um, but the socks are still they are, top, the, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, Live and Let Die, mm. first question for you, why is it the best Bond theme? Why is it the best Bond theme? Yes. As opposed to the best Bond film? Well, why is it, without a doubt, <laughs> right, and without any debate, <laughs> yes. the best Bond theme. Okay. Slightly loaded question. <laughs> I do really like it. It's up it's in the probably in the top three Bond themes for me. Um I'm a big fan. I, I grew up in the eighties and so uh the first Bond film that I saw in a cinema was The Living Daylights. And so that era kind of stuck with me, like uh, the Living Daylights song by Aha. And A View to a Kill by Duran Duran are kind of uh, among my favourites. But Live and Let Die is up there as a kind of classic favourite. I don't know, it's just... I got... There There are some... I love all the Bond themes and I could listen to them all over and over again because I'm a ridiculous nerd fan and I can't help... Like, I even like Madonna's song, which nobody likes. Yeah. Um, but... There are a lot of quite soppy ballads in there, uh, which are a bit wishy. It's not because they're soppy, it's just because they're a bit wishy-washy. But Live and Let Die has just got some proper oomph, right? It's got, it it kind of swings and it rocks. It's got that little reggae bit. And it's got those incredible kind of blasting chords that in the title sequence of the film are matched with a face which turns into a skull which bursts into flames, which must possibly have inspired Paul McCartney's kind of stage pyrotechnics every time yeah. he plays that live. Um, I just think it's a really fun song to listen to, and it's just one that you have to turn up and play as loud as possible. Um, we, obviously, we're going to get into the, the song and the origins of the song and uh, how Paul came about getting involved in, in that as a project. But um, can you give us, a, I guess, a little bit of context around the film Live and Let Die, how it uh, I guess where it stood in terms of Bond as a franchise when it came out and I guess 
Live and Let Die being that the song being a part of that as well. It felt like a bit of a, a change in the direction yeah. of the franchise at the time, right? Yes, so Live and Let Die is 1973. That's why we're talking about it, because it was 50 years ago. Uh, the first Bond film, Dr. No, was 1962. So you had five Bond films with Sean Connery, the fifth of which was You Only Live Twice. He then resigned from the role. He'd had enough. And uh, for the next film, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, George Lazenby took over. But he was not a particularly popular James Bond with audiences at the time. That film has kind of um, retrospectively been reappraised a bit and people generally appreciate it a lot more now than they used to. But it didn't go very da- down very well at the time. And so Sean Connery was brought back for one more film, Diamonds Are Forever, which came out in 1971. And then he said, I've definitely had enough now. So because the Lazenby experiment failed slightly. The producers of the Bond films decided they weren't going to try and replicate Sean Connery. They would go in a slightly different direction. So they brought on Roger Moore, who had already been courted for the role in 1962 when Doctor No was made, and again in 1969 when On Majesty's Secret Service was made. But he picked it up in 73 for Live and Let Die. And it was a little bit of a change of direction. The films um, certainly... Diamonds Are Forever, the previous film, which was directed by Guy Hamilton, had got a little bit more comedic, a lot less serious than most of Connery's films, and certainly on The Majesty's Secret Service, which was quite serious. So there was a there was a direction that the films had decided they were going to go in, which was this fairly um, light-hearted direction. Guy Hamilton again directed Live and Let Die. And so, yeah, you had a bit of a new era, really, where they decided to kind of sweep everything to one side and start and do something a bit different. So Roger Moore is a, a, a lot more easygoing, light-hearted, takes it a bit less seriously. And along with that, they've got rid of some of the familiar tropes of Sean Connery's Bond. So Roger Moore smokes cigars where Sean Connery smokes cigarettes. He drinks bourbon where... He smokes a ridiculously long cigar. He smokes massively it's long gigantic. cigars. It's gigantic. It takes up the majority of the screen when That's he smokes right. that cigar. Well, uh, while, while paragliding as well. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, as you do in your Bond. <laughs> Yeah. It's one of a number of phallic symbols, I think, in that film, but I probably shouldn't go into that. God, it's so subtle, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there was a there was a there was a bit of a change of direction. And as I think as part of that, you know, we can talk a little bit about how Paul McCartney got involved. But that song is certainly uh very different to the previous few songs that we'd had. They were kind of sung by traditional uh, I mean, trad is probably the wrong phrase to use, but singers like Shirley Bassey and Tom Jones, incredibly popular pop singers, uh, as Paul McCartney was, but this was a, on a lot more of a rocky theme than had mm. previously happened. Yeah. And you got this again in, in 2006 with Casino Royale, when uh, Chris Cornell did You Know My Name. They, they went down a very rock direction, whereas everything previously had been uh, kind of pop or you know, ballads and what have you. And so, yeah, they just, uh, I think, wanted to try something a bit different. And I'm not sure that the rockiness of Paul McCartney's song goes with Roger Moore's James Bond, yes. but it is certainly a change in direction. It, it, it's funny, actually, uh, the next question I was going to ask you was how Live and Let Die is seen now in terms of the context of the whole franchise, like how well has it aged? Mm. Uh, it's interesting, in asking that question, I feel like the song hasn't aged at all. The song still feels very modern, yeah. but the film hasn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's fair to say that the film is quite dated. 
yeah. certainly in its attitudes towards gender coffee machines. and race on coffee machines. <laughs> There's um, an entire scene in this where uh, where Em is looking at Bond's brand new espresso machine like it is like, from coming space. from NASA. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Generally, you will find if you look if you look online at polls now where people are ranking Bond films, places like IMDb and Letterboxd, Live and Let Die tends to turn up roughly in the middle. Mm. Personally, for me, it's a bit lower down. It's not one of my favourites, but I, I do kind of enjoy watching it because I've got I've just got to the point where watching any Bond film is like a comfort blanket for me. So they're all kind of in the, at the top. Yeah, they're, just, <laughs> they're just all there. In terms of the Roger Moore ones, where does it rank for you? Mm, good question. Uh, it's kind of up there. Like, I, I don't mind Roger Moore as, a, as an actor and as a film star and as a person, having met him. <laughs> he's very nice. All right. But as a James Bond... Like he's my least favorite James Bond right. because I I'm a bit of a Bond snob and I feel like Bond should be like he is in the books and this is as far removed from the book Bond as yeah. you can get. So you know I have to take all that on board. Um, I have huge problems with things in Live and Let Die, like the way that the villains are so unbelievably incompetent. Like yes. he's he. I think. There are about 10 or 12 assassination attempts on Bond throughout the film, and every single one fails, obviously, because he's Bond. But also they fail in the most pointless and pathetic reasons. Like, the bad guys just... At various points, they just give up. Like, there is points where you could just... He's there. He's in the room. He's in front of you. You could just shoot him in the head. Yeah. And that has obviously become a trope of Bond films over the years, and Austin Powers takes the mickey out of that, and that's, you know, a thing that... Everybody makes fun of for the Bond films, but this is the worst offender, I think, in terms of chances that you have to kill Bond versus actual successful attempts. Uh, Ed, I think you made the point before we started recording that there's a, a moment in the film where the big bad guy, although we don't know it at the time, Kananga, oh, well, it's Mr. Big, isn't it, at the time, basically dismisses Bond and says, um, oh, just kill him. Yeah. But, he- but his henchmen don't do that immediately and instead yeah. allow Bond some time to flirt with Solitaire instead. Like, <laughs> right, just watch yeah. or just li- give him a bit of space, give him a bit of time yeah, and yeah, then walk in exactly. a second. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, he's, he's about to die. Let him flirt with a girl for a bit. Come on. <laughs> it's, the, it's, it's the least he deserves. Yeah. No, I, th- I mean, Roger Moore is always uh, accused of sort of making the thing too lighthearted. And, you know, like like anyone can see the differences between the Moore and Connery eras. But I, when watching this, I haven't seen this for a few years. First time I watched it for a while. And I was watching bits of this and thinking, oh, this, his, it is obviously more lighthearted, but there are bits where he's quite brutal. Even just in his attitude right at the start, where M is telling him about these other agents who have been killed. And one's called Baines, I think. Mm. And uh, so this guy uh, who he knew is dead. And he says, oh, I rather like Baines. Like we shared, we shared the same bootmaker, something <laughs> yes. like that. And that's obviously like a, joke in a way like it's kind of shit but it's all it's very callous mm. like this is a, a work a colleague of mine i don't know whether like you go to work for mi6 and like you know your your mates you know and you go and you go out for lunch at prep together or, or, or whatever but like um but generally speaking this is someone who, who he knew very well and he doesn't seem that bothered about yeah uh, i think if you work for mi6 you have to half expect that every single day you turn up for work, somebody you worked with yesterday has been shot in the head. Yeah, <laughs> I suppose so. Yeah, HR must be a nightmare. Right? <laughs> I, I kind of got a little bit of a, the opposite uh, impression from that. In that, I kind of got the impression Bond didn't really know him because the person that comes to mind is we shared the same bootmaker, mm. not that we. Oh, we went to Pret last week. <laughs> you know, like you know, like he knew Baines through his bootmaker. I, I was left with the impression that 
he didn't really know Baines yeah. very well at all. And that's I don't think it's among Roger Moore's most brutal uh <laughs> moments in the Bond franchise. For your eyes only has probably the most yes. <clears throat> unmore like Moorisms. Um, oh, he, yeah. he, he, uh, there's a guy uh, hanging over the edge of the cliff in his car, and he just uh, he just kicks it. Over. He, he kick, kicks yeah, the car right. over oh, the yes, cliff. Of course, you know? yeah, over that. yeah, that yeah, that's very brutal. That. Yeah. It's funny you're talking about Bond rankings. Upon watching it again now, I don't think I liked it as much as I thought I did. And I actually wonder if, when you look at all of the Bond titles stacked up side by side, when I see Live and Let Die, I do actually wonder whether or not. There's a part of me that thinks of the song. It's like, oh, I like the song, okay. Live and Let Die. Yeah. Uh, that's that's a great one because yeah. I remember how great that song is, mm-hmm. you know, and actually watching this again, you know, from beginning to end, actually, I, I found it a quite uh, dull in places, yeah. dare I say it? Yeah, it's a bit sluggish. There's that whole boat chase sequence and... It's, kind of it's that half. point that it takes a long time. It goes on for a while. It's, a really yeah. lo- it's really long and it's not particularly interestingly directed or edited and... For a large chunk of it, there's no score over it. And I know we're going to talk later about George Martin's sure. score for this film, but that is largely absent from the boat chase. And, and it's moments like that where it does kind of, you start kind of tuning out a bit and looking at your phone. I don't know if this is necessarily true of the sort of Bond formula or the Bond template, but by the time that boat chase happens, I felt like he's already had his big confrontation with the main bad guy. Mm. So, you know, normally that would you're building up towards that. Yeah. And I remember when that happened, I was like, there's still half of this film to go. <laughs> like, what is there? And basically, yeah. it's just a series of of chases and um, traps for him to escape from. Yes. So, for him to just get back to where he was, which was another confrontation. Yeah. It's um, it's not a well-paced film. It's not... I mean, this is why it's not very high up in the rankings for me. But, I mean, you take it on its own terms. If you do watch... If you decided to do a Bond marathon... I mean, don't watch them all in a row for a start. That would be stupid. But if you watch like one a week, you would probably find that this was not uh, one of your favourites. But I, but I think like for me, if I watch it, it isolated from the others, which is kind of how I do it now, um, it, it's kind of fine. You pick Bond moment, Bond films for the mood that you're in, and sometimes you're in a live and let die mood, and it works. Fair enough. But if you're in a Casino Royale mood, don't watch Live and Let Die, you <laughs> idiot. <laughs> What were you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Casino Royale's right there. Just watch that. <laughs> but going back to, I guess, the, the main reason why we're here, everyone's always in a live and let die mood when it comes to the song, right? Sure. There is never a bad time to listen to that song. Correct. Funeral? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yes. He makes a good point. <laughs> <laughs> this is now going to be the song that I want played at my funeral. <laughs> so uh, let's talk a little bit about how Paul got involved with writing this this Bond theme. Am I right in thinking that he was approached to do this by Ron Cass? Well, this is disputed oh, okay. in, in both Bond and Beatles lore. But the way that I understand it is that Ron Cass, who was... So you'll you'll know more about this than me, but I think he was MD of Apple in about sixty eight. Yeah, I defer to Ed on okay. all beautiful facts. Yes, Ed's given me the nod, so that works good. And he was also managing director of various other companies that were connected to or overseen by Harry Saltzman, who was one of the two 
Bond producers. He worked with Cubby Broccoli. Um, quite interesting, by, by this point, Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman had had a bit of a falling out, and so they were, they while well, they had produced all the previous Bond films together, they started to take them in turns at this point. So Harry Saltzman is almost producing Live and Let Die by himself. And I think Ron Cass, because he had the connection with Saltzman and he had the connection with McCartney, at some point it, it came into his head, whether Harry Saltzman suggested it, I don't know, but he said to Paul McCartney, would you like to do a Bond song? Wouldn't that be great? And Paul said, yes, of course. So Paul went away and read the book of Live and Let Die, wrote the song the next day, apparently, or that afternoon, I'm not sure. And it kind of went on from there. He asked George Martin to produce the song. And I think as a result of that choice, George Martin was then brought on to do the score, the orchestral score for the rest of the film. I think that's how it works. But, you know, there's been various... And, but there, is there? Am I right in thinking that there was a there was an opening for George to do the score because John Barry had up until that point done most, if not all, of the yeah, scores. Yeah, he, he'd done all the scores apart from the first one. Monty Norman did the score for the first James Bond film, Doctor No. But John, but Monty Norman had written a theme for James Bond, which was quite bad, and John Barry had been brought on to rearrange it. And so he arranged it in the way that we now know it. This very brassy. Mm rocky, jazzy, swingy. I mean, it takes in so many different genres, this theme. And so John Barry then went on to score the rest of the film. But at this point, he was... He'd kind of had enough of Bond. It was a lot of work for him for very little reward. He wasn't being taken very seriously in the industry. And he was getting more plaudits for the other stuff that he was doing. He was also working on a lot of musicals at this point. And so I think he just kind of turned his back. I mean, essentially, he quit and left the Bond series at this point. Mm. He did come back and do a few more. Right. But at this point he said no, he'd had enough. So yes, there was an opening for someone to do it. And I think once somebody has produced the theme song, it's actually quite difficult to get another composer to come along and say, okay, I will in- interpolate that song into my score. It's much easier for George Martin having to produce that song to then work that elements of that theme into the rest of the yeah, it's, it's funny actually. I think the the interviews that I read with both George and Paul about them approaching this project, uh, both of them said that that the idea of writing to order appealed to them. Mm-hmm. The idea of of having sort of a template laid down already, yeah. or you know, having a formula to follow appealed to both of them, which is yeah, uh, quite interesting. Particularly for I think for Paul, one of the things that I've I've always been quite interested in is you don't really think of Paul writing songs to order. You know, like you don't think of like because he he's just uh, I I think of Paul as just constantly churning out songs left, mm. right, and centre all yeah. the time. The idea of him sitting down and trying to write a Bond song and trying to think of what a Bond song has to include mm. for it to sound like a Bond song that's just interesting to me. And I know that there's a thing, isn't there, where a lot of different Bond themes contain the similar note sequence that yeah. is basically using the John Barry theme mm-hmm. and incorporating that into its its song yeah i don't think paul's ever acknowledged that that's what he did but it definitely does that
I think that that's the thing that came from John Barry because he would have co-written the theme songs for a lot of those earlier films. And so knowing what he was going to do within the score, he worked bits of the score and particularly the, the James Bond theme into the theme songs. And so I think McCartney had probably listened to those songs and realised what Barry was doing and thought that was probably the right thing to do. Yeah. Whether he was kind of mandated to do that by any of the higher-ups, I'm not sure. I think the one thing that, that anybody who wrote the theme song for a Bond film was asked to do at that point was just make sure that the title was mentioned quite right. early on so that in the credits you'll notice if you watch a lot of the earlier films the name of the film pops up in the titles at the exact point where it is sung. Right, that's interesting. Um, yeah. So that happened, not always, but that happened quite a lot in the early films. It's, it's interesting that if he, even though like it, it's going in a slightly rockier direction, like it's the direction that the themes hadn't gone in before, that he seems to have listened to them and thought, ah, this is what Bond theme songs sound like. Mm. I'm going to write in that style. Because it wasn't necessarily... I think if you if you say to people now, like, oh, you know, in the style of a Bond theme song, they broadly know what you mean. Mm-hmm. It's bombastic. It's probably in a minor key. Mm. There's lots of big string swells and things yeah. like that. And even though we're, we're, what, about 10 years into the Bond franchise at this point, yeah. he's able to look at that and think, okay, yeah, I know how to do one of these, you know. Yeah. That's a pretty specific kind of skill. I think, I think what's interesting about that as well is that, uh, so Live and Let Die, let's not forget, is a song that, Paul has played live and it's been a, con- a consistent part of his live set for decades. Yeah, yeah, He has obviously been asked about the song lots of times, as is Paul's way, mm-hmm. normally tells the same two or three stories about the writing of that song. <laughs> yeah. When he talks about the writing of that song, he often talks about Linda having written the reggae part of the song. He talks about, uh, which we'll get onto, I think, the idea that when he first presented the song, it might have been seen as a demo version for someone else to sing but never once as he said i took john barry's theme <laughs> and wrote around that yeah uh, and i think we've we have talked before a little bit about paul is always very reluctant to sort of give a suggestion that there should be credit placed elsewhere on his work <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know? yes i think that's fair to say <laughs> but you but you feel like you know it'll be interesting like all the times he's been asked about that song like and and i've seen multiple interviews with him and with other members of wings talking about paul like basically bashing out the chords like you say within the space of an afternoon or space of a day mm. but never once as far as i'm aware as he, as he seemed to have publicly acknowledged that this was written around an existing sort of chords sequence or note sequence I think maybe he gets away with it because it isn't to the casual listener you might not be able to pick up the Bond theme or at least uh, those four chords that we're familiar with within the song Live and Let Die but they kind of sit there you can overlay them quite easily without it sounding off you know Mm. So I think that he's probably using that. Also, he's probably kind of forgotten. Just <laughs> yeah. Yeah. there is that to be fair. Yeah, but he, but he does remember bits like uh, the fact that Linda wrote the reggae bit. Yes, and and also you know a, a few times you've seen him tell the story of like uh, like I I had the title to start off with, which is quite rare. I don't usually have the title as a starting point, and so I thought well. A, a way to approach this is to work backwards and say, well, you used, you used to say live and let live, but now you say live and let die, which is his general sort of founding premise for how to arrive at the lyrics. 
which is really interesting. Like you've heard him say a few things in the past about how he went about writing certain songs just through sort of or the lyrics to them just through kind of certain lyrical exercises like hello goodbye was literally just an exercise of sitting down at the piano and singing opposites mm. until you got to ones that were sort of uh the ones that were pleasing you know yeah yeah and, uh, i can see that actually like being presented with an idea and i guess your your first thought about how to approach that idea is contrast yeah yeah uh but it's also interesting that um he does he he maybe it's just because he's a good storyteller, but uh, about his own work, but he doesn't seem to sort of repeat that, you know. So it's like I, I use this method to write "Hello Goodbye," yes, and I use this method to write "Live and Let Die," both brilliant songs. Uh, but I never tried it again, you know. I just uh, you know, it's like if that was me, I would I would, I would get up every morning. Here's my new song. And... Yes, no. <laughs> exactly. Left, right, up, down. <laughs> yeah. um, talking of uh, lyrics. Neil, you said you would place this song in your top three Bond themes. However, I do happen to know that you are a massive grammar pedant. <laughs> <laughs> I know so where this is going. The line in this ever-changing world in which we live in, mm. how does that sit with you? Badly. <laughs> I mean, um, I think McCartney has... I mean, again, he can't really remember and he doesn't really care. So he'll just say whatever pops into his head when anyone asks him. Mm. It's either in this ever-changing world in which we live in, which is grammatically horrendous, <laughs> or in this ever-changing world in which we're living. Which yes. we living is like, I always heard it like that, in which oh, we living. Okay. I, I One of those you know things where you're just kind it's of... It's one or the other, yeah. Yeah, you're not singing grammatically. I, you know, I think of it as almost kind of... Uh, it's sort of deliberately un- ungrammatical, sort of artistic flourish. Yeah, I just think it doesn't matter because the cadence works and it's just a nice bit of, uh, I don't know, it's just nice to listen to. It's the cadence, what, yeah. What's like quite it. interesting is that there's a, another version of the song within the film. Mm-hmm. Um, they Bond goes into a restaurant and there's a singer on stage and she sings a version of Live and Let Die, which in itself is fascinating because that doesn't happen in any other Bond films. Nobody just comes out and sings the theme song in the middle of the film. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah. Uh, in From Russia With Love, you hear From Russia With Love on the radio. Yes. But it's the only time really where you get it kind of in the diegesis of the film. Mm. But when she sings it, she definitely says, in which we live in. So yes. she definitely sings it in the grammatically incorrect way, mm-hmm. which makes me think that that's probably how it was written down. Mm. So this yeah. is BJ Arno, uh, who is singing sort of like a kind of like a disco version yeah. of the song, right? It's, it's a, a kind of uh, a soul uh, disco. It's a bit of everything, isn't it? It's it's, it's quite a good version as well. It's Do you great. Like it? yeah. 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 There's a lot of wah in that. <laughs> so there's a huge amount of wah guitar going on in there, uh, especially over the guitar solo. Um, but yeah, it's quite a fun, fun listen. When you got a job to do, you got to do it well. You got to give the Uh, it's interesting, yeah, because I, I kind of I've just always assumed that it was the gra- grammatically incorrect version. Mm. Um, and this idea of Paul saying, oh, I'm not sure it might have been in which we're living, but also actually it might be just in which we live in, which sounds cuter, I mm. think is what he said in the interview before. <laughs> sounds a little bit like he's just sort of 
you know, covering his own back and yeah. backtracking a little bit. And yeah. it genuinely doesn't, like you say, it doesn't matter. Sure. Um, he doesn't know, and so he's just saying whatever comes into his head at the time he's asked the question. <laughs> yeah, exactly, which is all we could ask of him yeah. at any time. <laughs> we should mention that there is a, a story that comes up again and again whenever Paul or George uh, was asked about the, the making of Live and Let Die, which is that um, when Paul went away and recorded the entire song, I think it was the, the actual final version of the song as well, because um, he was in the middle of the Red Rose Speedway sessions at the time. Yeah. So he recorded the song with Wings, and when they presented that to the Bond producers... Yeah, George Martin presented it to Harry Saltzman. That's right. In, in, this, um, in this anecdote, story. which may or may not be true. <laughs> yeah. um, and then uh, the, the way the story goes is that uh, Harry Saltzman was like, that sounds great, who should we get to sing it? Yeah. And I think Paul says, you know, what do you mean? That you know, This is the song, when he tells the story. George is even more generous with his story embellishments. In it. He <laughs> says, you, you just heard multi-award winning uh, singer-songwriter Paul McCartney. Who else yeah. do you want? Um, Guy Hamilton, the director, gets to chip in at some point in various versions of the story as well really? and say, you know, obviously you've got one of the best-selling artists of all time. Let's not look a gift horse in the mouth. Exactly. Yeah. But it's a story that they've been telling for years, for decades. Yeah. And it was actually only recently debunked i think last year um and and there's a there's a piece that um i think did the rounds at the end of last year in the run-up to the release of the new paul mccartney book the Mm -hmm. mccartney legacy uh volume one by alan cozen and adrian sinclair where i think they did a lot of research uh into this and found the original contract for the song and the song uh, the, the contracts apparently always stipulated that it would be a song written and performed in the movie by Paul McCartney. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's one of those conversations that either A, may or may not have happened, full stop, and B, may have happened completely differently. But also, even in the versions that we have, can be read in lots of different ways. Like, it's entirely possible that they always knew that there was going to be a theme song and then that theme song would then be repeated at some point during the film. And we have B.J. Arno popping up and singing that song. So maybe Harry Saltzman, when he said, who do we get to sing it? He had Mm. accepted that obviously Paul McCartney was going to sing the theme song at the start of the film. But maybe he was saying, who are we going to get to sing it within the film? And he was thinking about various Mm. black female artists who could have sung it during the film. I don't think we'll ever know. There's a, uh, yeah, no, that's fair. I think there's a, um, a suggestion I've read as well that the original plan for that alternate version was for the song to be performed by Fifth Dimension. Yes. I don't know who Fifth Dimension are, yeah. do you? Uh, only from what I've read about this. This exact <laughs> this so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is yeah. Fifth Dimension's claim to fame is that they almost sang <laughs> an alternate version of the song by Paul McCartney. There are other alternate versions. There's, there's quite a lot of covers of Live and Let Die, aren't there? Uh, my, my, yeah. Probably my main exposure to this song, I, mean, I would have heard the, the film version first because I watched Bond films growing up with my mm-hmm. dad, like you, you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier. Um, so I knew that, but probably the version I heard the most uh, was the Guns N' Roses one. Yeah, which is really good. Yeah, it's yeah. put to really good use in Gross Point Blank. Oh yeah, one of my favourite films. Yeah.
Chrissy Hines does a really good version on David Arnold's album of Bond cover songs. Oh, and apparently, okay. Jerry Halliwell did a cover version. Brilliant. Which did I you? have not heard. Right, okay. <laughs> and will not hear. <laughs> I'll, try, I'll try very, very hard not to. There's, there's a great, there's a reggae version by a band called Byron Lee and the Dragonairs as well, which is excellent. Mm-hmm. Very <laughs> good. Thanks. That, that's going full reggae. So taking the, the reggae yeah. section in the middle and just being, you know what, that's the best bit in the song. We're yeah. going to apply the same style to the rest of it. Do they do the reggae section in a very in Western a rock. rock way? Yes. <laughs> That would earlier that uh, there was an interview with uh, Denny Seal, he suggested that the reggae part of the song, which Paul has always credited to Linda, but he suggested that um, actually Paul had come up with that part of the song because he knew there was a, that, that the film took part in Jamaica for, for some of the plot. So the, this idea of, again, we're going back to there's a chase sequence, there's explosions, and also Bond's in Jamaica, let's do some reggae. Again, sort of <laughs> you know, like creating a song out of its component parts. But uh, just to nitpick, Bond does not go to Jamaica in Live and Let Die. It's filmed in Jamaica. Oh, well, there we go. He goes to San Monique, which is a fictional island. Oh, I mean, well, yeah, fair enough. While we're nitpicking, <laughs> it does remind me to mention that uh, I think the, 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 the story about how Paul became involved in writing the song, he said that he was asked to write it and there's an interview where he says, I asked them to send me a copy of the book and I read it that day. And I just really enjoyed this idea that Paul had to ask someone to send him a copy of the book. He can just pop out to the shop and himself <laughs> and get one or send someone to go and get him a copy of the book for yeah. like a fiver or whatever it was, you know. Right. Like He was like, well, if you're going to ask me to write the song, I want you to send me the book and then I'll see. Preferably... And he didn't even read it properly yeah. because he Preferably thought he the, the manuscript that Ian Fleming typed out on his typewriter <laughs> in Jamaica uh, and then signed for me. Yes, exactly. From Jamaica. And that's why he included the reggae section in the song. Uh, and to, to be fair to him, Paul McCartney did invent reggae with Obla Di Obla Da. So, you know, he can, he, he can do whatever he likes with <laughs> A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Should we talk about George Martin's score? 
Yeah. You are a big score guy, right? Big score guy. Famous for it. Yeah, Mr. Big Score. That's what we call me. (laughs) Who do you think you are, Mr. Big Score? (laughs) Yeah, I love a soundtrack. I love the Bond soundtracks. They're all great. That's Uh, not true. They're not all great. Right, okay. Some are not great. How does George Martin's one stack up? Because, like, in, in in terms of in the context of John Barry, then now not doing a Bond mm. soundtrack, and George Martin taking over, but also, like we say, presumably trying to copy the same style. Yeah. Uh, in isolation, how do you think it compares? I mean, I love it. It's it's very it is different to what Barry was doing, but at the same time, it's the same, and it's really hard to pinpoint where it's different and where it's the same, but. All of those exciting action cues are there and the romance is there. The strings and the brass and the percussion are there that Barry uses, but all used slightly differently. So the strings are used differently, I think. The brass is used differently. I think the percussion is a bit harder in George Martin than it is in John Barry because of the time, I think, it's and because it's kind of based off a rock song. And maybe because of the film's subject matter, you know, so like lots of it's taking place in, in, in Harlem. Like yes. we're getting, you know, the sort of piggybacking on the sort of black exploitation thing that's happening mm-hmm. in, in cinema at that time. Yeah. And, and I suppose, and it's, you can hear that a bit of that in the score. There's a lot more sort of wild, wild guitar yeah. in this, but it's sort of di- mm-hmm. like disco beats and things like well, that. Well, electric guitar and electric bass are certainly a lot more obvious yeah. than they had been in, um, in John Barry. But he'd always, John Barry had always said that Bond music was this kind of mixture of genres. You had jazz, pop, rock, classical music is in there and swing is in there. And he said, I've got this quote here. He said, you need big, strong brass chords and sustained strings. And you need those to stand up against the special effects, the fights, the explosions, the gunshots and everything. So George Martin's doing all that, but he is doing it in his own way. I really like it. I, it's one of the, ones that I go back to and listen to more than the others because it's a very exciting listen. It hasn't got any kind of... It doesn't really sag. It hasn't got any slow... Well, it has got some slow bits, but they're not... They don't drag. Mm. But yeah, I... You know, the Monty Norman score for Doctor No is is kind of a bit weird because it's largely Calypso songs. So I think for the purposes of this exercise, we can discount that. Everything else that John Barry did, all brilliant, all great, but it's actually quite nice to then have a change of mood slightly. Mm. It's it's different enough to be interesting, but the same enough to still be recognisably Bond. Is it normal for uh, Bond scores to incorporate the melody of the Bond theme within the score, Ra- like as in rather than just focus on the Bond, the, the main Bond mm. theme, the John Barry elements? Yeah. Because this does incorporate a lot of the live and let die melodies that Paul. Yeah wrote I'd say it's very common in Bond scores to have melodies and um, elements of the theme song crop up again in the score that is a common thing it doesn't happen all the time because sometimes the song has been written entirely um, separately from the score maybe with totally different people working on it and sometimes the themes presumably 
just don't have that catchy a melody. Well, let's... I mean, you're probably thinking of Die Another Day, for example, yeah, yeah. which has no real melody at all. Mm. And David Arnold wrote the score for that completely separately from Madonna writing her song. Right. So there's absolutely nothing of Madonna's song in that score. Mm. And that does happen a couple of times. But by and large, yeah, you will find that whoever's written the score has got involved at some point, if possible, in the writing of the song. And so, yeah, there will be a kind of through line there. Because I, I think that through not being a big score guy, I do enjoy picking out those elements of the song. Yeah. And, and because it, it is such a great melody and because yeah. the song itself is made up of separate components, mm-hmm. right? There are like four different sections in the that make up the entire song, each with their own distinct melody. Yeah. And you can hear them getting picked out well the, the da, 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 yeah. da, da, is so great for any action scene yes, you can just exactly. blast, you can just do yeah. what you like with that and i think i because i uh, there's an interview with denny sewell who's the drummer in wings at the time okay. when they were recording this session uh in the interview he says that that was the first bit that paul wrote for the song and it's because he was like i need a chase sequence for the okay. theme so he's he apparently had already thought of that and called it basically the chase sequence for the thing. And then the the big four cause is the explosions that you get with a Bond theme. It it sounds like the way that Denny had uh, talked about this in this interview was that like Paul saw them as different components that make up a Bond film. Yeah. I don't know how. I mean, that's honestly, but yeah, I, it seems unlikely that you would write a song thinking, well, this bit will go with the chase sequences. But mm. it does seem likely that if you were trying to write a song that sounds like a Bond film, then yes, you would have a fun. And there, there's also there's that. a really early uh, interview, I think, with Paul, where he talks about uh, getting the commission for writing the theme. And there's almost an implication that he might be involved in the writing of the score as well. Okay. And he so he talks about this and he says, I'm, I think he even says, like, I'm not sure about writing the score. or But I do wonder if he's approached the theme with that in mind. Like he's thinking about what bits would he be able to pick out to use for certain, you know, parts of the film itself. Okay. I but don't... obviously that then went to George Martin. And... Yeah, I don't know about that. I don't know that he ever um, thought he would be writing the score. That's if that happened, that's... Outside of my yeah. uh, world. <laughs> I think if you think about so 1966 when Paul and George Martin collaborate on the score for The Family Way, yeah. like we're, we're sort of given to understand that that Paul's main contribution for that was that he kind of wrote uh, the sort of main motif or refrain and sort of played it to George Martin on a piano from which George Martin basically wrote the whole the whole score that incorporated that motif over and over again and then you know so, so yeah so it could be a similar thing to which and as from what i understand that is essentially what happened here right so paul wrote mm. the song then gave it for george to work out with the orchestral parts of the song and then george then went on to to write the score for the film using similar sort mm-hmm. of phrasing yeah. as he'd already yeah. done yeah makes sense george martin uh, actually had previous with bond don't know if you knew about this but he uh, was involved in the production of Matt Monroe's song for From Russia With Love in oh, yeah. 1963. Oh. And um, one of the things that George Martin did in that song was recorded a piano track. Uh, I forget which way around it is, but he's either recorded it at half speed and an octave higher, or he's recorded it at double speed and an octave lower. I can't remember. Oh. But when he's played it back, he's made the piano sound a bit like a cymbalum, which is a kind of instrument that you would hear in... Um, Eastern European 
situations such as Bond finds himself in that mm, film. Okay. So there's there are some if you listen to the song of the theme song from Rush with Love, quite early on you will hear this cymbalom type sound, which mm. is actually a piano which George Martin has manipulated to make. That's interesting. Which, that's which is a very George Martin thing to do. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, yeah, yes. of course. Yeah. But, you know, but, like, if you're doing that in 1963, I suppose, you know, when what are the things that were sort of sped up and, and sped down? So, the, the In My Life... Um, piano solo. Yeah, piano solo. Sounds like sort of, a harpsichord. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, or the sort of the guitar solo in A Hard Day's Night. Uh, so that was like played at half speed and then sped up again. So... Um, yeah, he's he sort of seems it seems to be quite innocent. I don't really know whether like other people are using these techniques. Yeah, um, certainly. Like we've spoken before, we spoke in the episode about the produced by George Martin documentary. How he seems to have been sort of liberated by working with the Beatles to and just let his creative spirit run free. Yes, um, but again, like by by following almost like a template that they set out, or at least following uh, the lead that they set out for him. You know, like uh, in in going back to this idea of um george being be given sort of a license to do uh, to have to do something creative but within rules mm. um it does feel like the beatles sort of almost laid out the groundwork for him to be able to play within those kinds of yeah those kind of rules and also interesting you mentioned that uh george Martin documentary we should obviously reference the fact that there is a big part of that documentary would they would they make a, a lot of effort to link george martin to bond yes through uh, obviously, he's working live and let die, mm. but mostly because there's like a really long shot of George Martin looking very, very dashing <laughs> and really like smouldering looks, smoking a cigarette, okay. looking like the most impossibly sexy man you've ever seen in your life. Mm. And they play, have like a bit of like a Bond music playing sort of at the same time, almost suggesting that he could have played Bond. Yeah. Uh, and I, I don't yeah. disagree. John Barry is another one who, in his heyday, you could see as a Bond. Oh, really? And they, they both. John Barry lived with Michael Caine for a while and you can kind of see Caine as a Bond figure in some ways. Yeah. I think basically if you were a kind of white man in your 30s in the 60s, um, then you were pretty cool and you just generally <laughs> like Bond. Yeah, yes. I <laughs> think that's how it works? Yes, that's exactly how it works. I George Martin that's... also uh, followed John Barry and Monty Norman and preceded David Arnold in that long line of Bond composers who share two first names in their name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, wow, you've cracked this one. <laughs> I really have. Uh, I've got another George Martin Bond connection to throw at you. Do it. You, I'm sure you already know it already. Don't I'm going to give you a name. Vic Flick. Oh, the Flickster. The Flickster. Yeah, right? I've, just, I've just called him that. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> called him that until now. But it, but it works, right? Who is sure. Vic Flick? Can you tell us? Vic Flick uh, was the guitarist who worked with John Barry on the arrangement of the James Bond theme in the first place. So uh, the very famous ding, diddling, ding, 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 diddling, ding. That's Vic Flick playing the guitar. Yeah, he went on to play on uh, most, if not all, of John Barry's scores. He played that. He also was part of the George Martin Orchestra that played on the Hard Day's Night film. Oh, really? And he also, because uh, when it came to help... George Martin actually hired most of the musicians who played on the Goldfinger soundtrack to recreate the similar kind of Bond yes. style music for Bond, that film, yeah. including a very specific Bond-like yeah. uh, riff that 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 is Vic Flick as well playing that. Oh, I did not know that. Which is yeah, that's really good, interesting. Good Bond knowledge. Yeah. Bond trivia. 
It's, it's interesting at that point. So in, in 1965, we talked about this. I, sorry, I keep on referencing previous episodes. You know, mm, yeah. I'm a, um, fine. I'm, we, we've got a few under our belt now. Let's yeah, do it. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a canny marketeer, if nothing else. But, <laughs> but in, in our episode about help, we talked a bit about the fact that there are sort of Bond references in it, or like, you know, um, but particularly in the score more than anything else. But that by 1965, it was seen that that was a thing that was uh, sort of culturally well-known and relevant enough that you could make references to. Mm. Things like that rely on consensus, right? They rely on the fact that you can make this reference and people think, ah, yeah, that sounds a bit like James Bond, you know. But, you know, at, at this point, because, they, you know, James Bond mentions the Beatles in Goldfinger. I think it's Goldfinger, isn't it? That's right, right yeah. And he says something about it would be... No, I'll tell you what, I'm going to do the voice. Um, he says... <laughs> He says uh, it'd be like listening to the Beatles without earmuffs, and uh, is that what he says? Something like that. Yes, he's referring to drinking Dom Perignon fifty three above a temperature of thirty eight degrees Fahrenheit, yeah. which would be as bad as listening to the Beatles without earmuffs. Right, yeah. Bond. They're really speaking to the same working class demographic <laughs> yeah. that the Beatles fans. <laughs> it's a really interesting moment in Bond history because there's very few refer- cultural references in Bond films. Nobody hmm. really talks about pop music or films or anything like that in the Bond right, films. Right, right. So. Because those are the kind of things that you think references like that, you know, if, if we make references like that, it might might date mm. it, you know. But but what it says to me is like... So at, at this point, um, the Beatles are thought of as a fad because there, there has been... There is no template for a pop pop band that has lasted. Sure. The, the whole point of pop bands is to be ephemeral, to come along, do some hit singles, and then you stick those on an album so you can sell them again and then like nobody's heard of them a year from now. Mm-hmm. Um, and everyone keeps asking the Beatles at this point, how long are you going to last? Um, and they all say, oh, you know, hopefully, hopefully another year or two if it all goes well. You know, mm-hmm. that's kind of, you know, there's no thought that anyone's going to be talking about the Beatles in 60 years from now. And it, what it says to me is that maybe the James Bond franchise thinks of itself the same way. I like n- no one's thinking like, well, uh, we better not make this cultural reference about this thing that is a fad, yeah. because you know what if people in who are watching this film in sixty years mm-hmm. think, uh, oh, who are this band, the Beatles? <laughs> no, that's an obscure reference from the early sixties. Uh, I suppose you know we, we, these big film franchises that we're so familiar with now. At the time, I suppose, nobody really had any thought about building a franchise that was going to last ages and ages and ages. No, I mean, Bond is interesting because at, at that point when Goldfinger was made in 64, you did have a series of 12 or 13 books. So they knew that they could have gone on and made a load more. Yeah. But they're on the third one and Goldfinger was the one that was super successful that really rocketed the franchise into kind of the zeitgeist. Yeah. But they didn't know that when they were making it, when they were writing it. So, yes, there's every chance that they didn't know how many more they had in them. Yeah. But also, nobody in 1964, if you watched a film in 1964, that was it. You didn't expect to see that again unless it was re-released. Yeah. Uh, it was a long time before films started to be shown regularly on the telly. Nobody, Certainly nobody in the making of Goldfinger was thinking about anybody at home uh, watching a Blu-ray and kind of pausing it and rewinding it and listening to those and studying those lines incessantly. You know, nobody yeah. was for any films. Doing an entire hour podcast sure. about <laughs> what, kind of, what kind of world would that be? <laughs> but the other thing it says to me, like that, that reference, is that uh, it sort of 
puts James Bond on the side of the establishment. You know, the, yeah. the, Be- the Beatles are a, a disruptive anti-establishment force at this time. Yeah. And James Bond is nailing his colours to the mast and saying, you know, I, I'm like the rest of you and I think this is a silly fad. Yeah. He's still very much part of, as you say, the establishment of the British Empire, yeah. which, you know, is 1964, what was left of that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's weird. It's a weird thing to do. It's interesting that the Beatles make the cut though like if you're going to reference everyone anyone mm. even at that in that year that it made sense to do it with the beatles yeah. like that, that there was a sort of a recognition there that if anyone's going to be important enough for bond's references like imagine now 60 years on we're talking about a reference that bond made to herman's hermits you know <laughs> <laughs> like <laughs> doesn't quite have the same ring to it but it I could think, have easily been that if yeah, i think all, roger all moore's bonds definitely listened to herman's on the subject any other Beatles Bond connections that we know of well there's a vague one and then there's a very big one so the vague one is that um, Sean Connery when he kind of got fed up with Bond at the end of after after You Only Live Twice he was getting mobbed in the streets he compared that to Beatlemania and he said that's one of the reasons why he's had enough. Uh, and he said, you know, there are four of the Beatles and they get to kind of spread it out between them, but there's only one of me. So that's kind of a, a one of those stories in Bond law where you always hear the Beatles mentioned. Um, I mean, the other big one is, of course, the launch of both Bond and the Beatles famously happened on the same day. Um, I think, and Ed will correct me because he's looking at me as if I'm he's just waiting for me to say the wrong day. <laughs> 5th of October, 1962. I couldn't tell you, but I know it, I know it was October 1962. Uh, was the day that Doctor No was released in cinemas and also the day that Love Me Do was released. The first Beatles single, in case you didn't know that, Ed. <laughs> I had no, I had no, no idea. No idea. I've never heard of it. Yeah, let me tell you. Uh, I'll take you to one side and tell you all about the Beatles. Thank you. Yeah, interesting. I wonder, wonder if there is a reason why that i mean I, I say i wonder if there's a reason why i know there's a reason why two such huge popular pop culture phenomenons can start at exactly the same time we've talked often about you know the 60s being a revolutionary period in, in time that allowed the beatles to i guess lead the way in in many ways mm. but there's a lot of social change happening at that time that allowed them to become as popular as they were and i guess a similar kind of thing for bond you know things were changing at a time that allowed mm. him to become this massive cultural yeah, uh, it's fertile ground. Yeah, but I think, as we were saying, I mean, that, that thing about sort of James Bond being an establishment figure, you know, one of the reasons the Beatles could uh, become so popular and pop music in general could start breaking through was that, you know, t- teenagers had, well, the term teenager had only recently been coined. It was coined around that time. And um, it, they had disposable income for the first time, sort of post-war. That hadn't really happened. And they could do things like go out and buy seven inch singles with the with the, the money they had and things like that the the explosion in popularity of the james bond franchise uh i'm not really sure what the audience was for that because it wasn't sort of it's not the same audience that the, Be- the beatles are appealing you haven't got to, the right? same people mobbing the fab four yeah. and then crossing the street and mobbing connery no. <laughs> no. and it is weird because also the audience for the books would have been a much older audience yeah and and the book and the films were then clearly aimed at a younger audience and mm. and got progressively younger mm. um so yeah it's unlikely that there was a crossover or a deliberate crossover but you know maybe it just happened organically 
Is it, is it, is it young men, generally speaking, that audience? Is it, it's a, there's sort of male wish fulfillment fantasies, I suppose, right? Oh, very much so, yeah. It's the sort of, you know, t- taking decisive action, not asking anyone else for help and just do it, sorting everything out yourself, you know, and, uh, you know, maybe a bit of snogging into the bargain. <laughs> um, and uh, then just, you know, shoot a guy and... Uh, that's, yeah, I mean, that's the whole franchise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One of the things you notice in this is, so we're introduced to uh, Roger Moore as James Bond for the first time in his flat. And it struck me that you, you don't actually see where James Bond lives all that much. It, it, is this the first time we see where James Bond lives? This is not the first time. This is the second time, but there have only been three times. Mm. So you see his flat in uh, Doctor No. Uh, you see it in Live and Let Die, and then you see it again in Spectre. And what's quite interesting is that each time you see Bond's flat, it's kind of reflective of the the actor who... Or the actor's portrayal of Bond. Yeah. So Connery's... The flat that you see in Doctor No is kind of classic and angular. Uh, when you get to Spectre, you see Daniel Craig, and it's very functional and unemotional and yeah. empty and kind of... Uh, spare and then in in live and let die you see this really uh i don't know a little bit porny it's like it's just sort of a porn (laughs) film it's absolutely a 70s yeah it's gadget obsessed it's completely uh vulgar (laughs) it's very roger moore's bond and i find it fascinating to be honest i i kind of like i love the fact that we don't see it very often the fact that we've seen it three times in 60 years i think is great because what it also means is that you can pour over those moments. So when I was watching Live and Let Die in preparation for this, uh, I paused it and I had a good look around Roger Moore's <laughs> kitchen. Um, and it's just really weird because he's got all of this all of this cooking equipment out that you just can't imagine Bond. That if you think about the Bond character, especially from the books, you just can't think of him ever using any of this shit. It's just loads of stuff lying around his house. I mean, you wouldn't care about a massive coffee machine that takes up half the kitchen that, yeah, yeah. You know, it does, does take that. up half yeah, the it's kitchen massive, yeah, yeah it's yeah. ridiculous um, but what I noticed this time for the first time ever <laughs> I did a freeze frame and I noticed that in the bottom left corner if you watch really carefully there's what appears to be a Breville sandwich maker <laughs> <laughs> and a bright orange Breville sandwich maker in the in the, just sitting there on the counter of James Bond's kitchen <laughs> uh, can you imagine James Bond making a toasty what would he put in it yeah. I don't know. I always go for just baked beans in mine. Oh, do you? But maybe, no, ham and cheese. Yeah. Ham and cheese. But I, I can't... What, what is he making that for? He's not making his own lunch. He's not sending himself off with a packed lunch to MI6 headquarters. No, absolutely not. I mean, maybe he's entertaining absconded Italian female agents with, yeah, yeah. with his baked beans. <laughs> the, the, whole, <laughs> the, the whole beginning to this... And I don't know how you feel about this. The, the beginning of the entire film is odd to me. Yeah. So it starts off with the killing of three agents, yes. right? One of which is killed. Uh, one of which the agent is the UK representative in the United Nations, yes. and he's killed by noise. Sound, yeah. Yes, he's killed by sound. Definitely possible. And no one in the room does anything when no. they realise he's in agony and collapses. No yeah. one reacts. There's, the second is Baines getting killed uh, in New Orleans during the funeral sequence. That's actually the third, but carry on. No, it's not. It's the, no, because the third is the guy getting third bitten snake. by a snake. Yeah, because that, that's the that's thing. That's Baines. Oh, okay. Okay. So, sorry. oh sorry. So the first one is the guy in the UN. Yes. The second one is the funeral in New Orleans. I thought that was Baines. No. the agent who gets no. killed. No. Okay. Yeah, uh, Baines is the guy who gets killed in um, 
somehow. Like, and and he gets killed by a snake bite. And yes. there's a nice moment now. I don't know if it's deliberate, but it sounds like the 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 tension that that happens in the score during that sequence when you see the snake nearing Bane's mm. face is very very similar to the day in life. Yeah, those uh, George, very George thing. Martin strings yes. that kind of rise and rise to a crescendo, and then the snake bite happens, and then those strings go back down again. It's interesting, isn't it? I, I kind of, I, I wonder, like George Martin thinking to himself, "Well, I've got to throw a Beatles reference in there." Yeah. Like, do you think he approaches all his projects like that? Like, I wonder whether whether it's just a sort of Easter egg, you know, yeah. kind of thing, or, or whether I mean that's a that's a new technique, right? I mean, so that that sound in there in the life is like they had an orchestra in Abbey Road, and I think mainly Paul like kind of stood and and just said they said to like every member of this orchestra, "I want you to go. Uh, you've got this many bars." And I want you to go from your lowest note to your highest note. Yes, like, so this, yes. This, in your own time or by it, a certain point. Yeah, it, but like you, you have to get there by this point after yes. this many bars, um, and uh, and th- these are all uh, you know different instruments in different keys and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is no way that should work. But yeah, it, but it does yeah. somehow. And, and your uh, man, what's his name, is counting. You can hear him in the background. Mal Evans. Mal, yeah, Mal Evans. Yeah. I would love to have heard Mal Evans counting during the score of Living Let Die, <laughs> or just standing to one side yeah. while that guy's getting bitten by a snake. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and... What in the scene? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. um, I don't know how much Bond trivia you want from me that is not Beatles related. Why else are you here? Um, so this is <laughs> this is a very interesting pre-title sequence because it doesn't feature James Bond. Right, and this is what I was going to say. It, it does feel a little bit out of sorts with what yeah. has come before. Um, from Russia with Love technically doesn't feature James Bond. Oh yeah, it's because a, it's supposed a, to be somebody else wearing a, a Sean Connery mask. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I see. Of course, um, yes. But yeah, this this doesn't feature James Bond, and then it goes straight into the scene in Bond's flat where. M and Miss Moneypenny turn up at Bond's flat, which mm. I find very uh, difficult to deal with because I don't believe for a moment that M would ever step outside no. of his office to uh, go to Bond's flat. No. And also, I, I find it quite interesting that the first time we see, like in the context of this is the Roger Moore's first film as Bond, the first time we see Bond is him in his flat, mm-hmm. but also him being caught off guard by M. And almost, yeah. almost the first time we see Moore's Bond is him almost like a naughty schoolboy. It's a really low-key really low uh, first appearance of an actor in a Bond role. If you w- yeah. watch all of the other actors' first films, they've all got quite an interesting... That dramatic entrance. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, but no, not this one. And he also, he seems quite flustered. Like, I don't think of Bond... I, don't, I can't imagine Sean Connery's Bond being put in the same situation yeah. where he's like, oh, I don't know what to do. I'm almost like a little bit panicky. Yeah. Like, I need to steer M away... Yeah. From the, I mean, he probably just, would, bed. He just like, wouldn't answer the door, or he just shoots at the door. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> also, one of the Bond, the only Bond film. Okay, I have to put a lot of qualifiers into this. Uh-huh. Q is not in this film, that right? True, yeah. And that until you get to the Daniel Craig era, where it was all rebooted, Q, or at least an armorer, was in every Bond film. He was played by a different actor in Doctor No, but this was the first time, right up until the end of. Um, the Pierce Brosnan era where there was no queue. Right. Okay. Which I think was also part of the urge to move away from 
But that's interesting. They, they still mention Q, though. Uh, Q Branch is mentioned, yeah. I think Money Penny says something yeah. like Q's fixed your watch. It's not a huge departure, is it? No, it's not. But it, uh, it just feels like th- it was a bit of a trope that Bond right. had to go into M's office, be debriefed by M, get his gadgets from Q, and then go on his mission. Whereas this time, M comes to Bond's flat, uh, Money Penny gives him the gadget. It's just, it's there's just a few little changes. It's almost it's, like they're willfully not indulging those tropes. Yeah, actually, only like, to later revert to them later in the franchise. Well, yeah, anyway. yeah. But like, but like, he doesn't. He, he doesn't even get the chance to do his catchphrase. Like, Mister Big cuts him off. He starts saying, "Oh, my name is Bond, James Bond," and Mister Big says, "Names is for tombstones." <laughs> oh, yes, that's like, right. So, yeah. so I suppose he does get. He does say it to Solitaire. He does get. Oh, does he? Bring it to Solitaire. No. I, I mean, the, does. The, <laughs> I'm referring to the catchphrase. He does. Good. Yeah. Good. I mean, like, there's, there's, it's remarkable how how much like you're, you're not a Roger Moore fan, but you will <laughs> indulge in innuendo. <laughs> <laughs> You mentioned earlier that obviously we have the the three agents being killed and it goes straight into uh, Bond in his uh, apartment. Um, But obviously between that, we actually have the song Mm -hmm. Live and Let Die, which is obviously why we're here. And the the theme sequence or the credit sequence that plays underneath that, uh, in some ways I thought was really effective. Like there's this imagery of, you know, you have these, you know, typical sort of credit sequence Bond girls, silhouettes. Yeah. Uh, and otherwise, some of them um, almost like emulating matches with like the like flames on their head. Yeah. And then when those big striking chords come in from the song, their faces like burst into like a skull. Mm. That's it. And that's very very dramatic. I think a very uh, evocative uh, imagery to go with the song itself. Mm-hmm. In other ways, it's quite basic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. I, I think Maurice Binder, we should credit with, with those title sequences, he designed them and shot them. Right. Yeah. Did, that, did, he, did he always do them and did he continue to do them? He, he did them from uh, Thunderball onwards until Licence to Kill was the last one that he right. did. For Live and Let Die, he, he possibly didn't have a great number of ideas, <laughs> I think it's fair to say. Well, because I, I guess that was my question, because I think of like those sequences as being really elaborate. You've got these silhouetted, naked yeah. girls being fired from guns yeah. and bursting into yeah. like a deck of cards or whatever There's it is. There's not you know? a lot of that in this one. No. There's the, there's the skull... So there's the voodoo theme yeah. from the film, which I suppose comes through the skull, and the bursting into flames, which matches the um, chords from the song, which are lovely. You've got these beautiful black models who are... Largely not in silhouette, and actually you can yeah. see quite a lot. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah. you know. And as a young boy watching those films with my dad, I found it quite awkward sometimes. Sure, um, but let's not go into that. <laughs> so yeah, but there's no, you know you're right. There's not a lot more than that. It's not one of. I I think he came up with like one really great idea for it and stuck with it. Yeah, yeah. It's not one that Alan Partridge could narrate no. at great length, <laughs> which is which is the true mark of a Bond exactly. credit sequence. <laughs> I, I don't know whether there is an official Live and Let Die music video. I mean, I was looking that up. There's a lot of um, uh, live performances of the time, and, and I guess ones that are attributed to being sort of an official Live and Let Die video, but I don't know if there was a music video that was released to coincide the song beyond this credit sequence. I, I don't think so. There is the performance from the James Paul McCartney TV special, which I think is uh, Wings debuting the song, and that's the one where... So you might have seen where... Uh, the, the sort of pyrotechnics go off at the end, and like it pulls piano effectively blows up, and um, the and the the, uh, the studio audience ends up getting uh, shards of splintered wood rained down on them. 
<laughs> so yeah, but I, I I think I think that's probably it. I'm not sure there's an actual music video. Uh, I need to watch that. That sounds horrendous. <laughs> it's as dramatic as the film itself. Yeah, yeah. That'd be great, though, to go home from that gig and for your for the, whoever you came home to say, what's that sticking out of your head? It's <laughs> <laughs> Paul McCartney's piano. Oh, amazing. <laughs> Sell it. Just part of the ever-changing world yeah. in which we live in. Yeah. In, in which we're living. <laughs> I think we might have covered everything that we need to. Uh, before we go, any other Beatles Bond connections? Anybody's hiding away? Oh, I do have one. Um, so uh, there is a po- very popular cameo appearance in this, or a supporting uh, role. Clifton James is uh, Sheriff J. W. Pepper. Oh my yes, gosh! I didn't mention him for a reason. <laughs> who, who, who then also pops up in Man with the Golden Gun? Yes, right. And he's in the he's in the car with Bond when he does the big loop, the loop. Yep. Stunt. Um, he also that actor. Also pops up in Superman Two, playing a character called the Sheriff, who mm. is e- effectively just the yes. same character. Wow. Basically, I'm not sure he's called J W Pepper in it. And uh, Superman Two, of course, directed by Richard, Richard Lester. Richard Lester, wow. director of uh, Well, Well, yes. Well. <laughs> it started being directed by Richard Donner, <laughs> yeah. but he was rubbish, so they took him off it and they put Richard Lester on. They were like, "You directed two films with the Beatles in. You're brilliant." We'll put you in instead. Fine. Fact. <laughs> so, so your Beatles Bond connection yes. is that one of the actors in this film played a similar role yep. in a film that was directed by someone who also directed some Beatles films. Yes. I can't believe you missed the fact that George Harrison played solitaire. <laughs> oh, oh time. There, there, there is a picture of George Harrison wearing a 007 t-shirt. Uh, yes, there is. That's right. Uh, yes, how is that? that? Is that yeah. better? That's a bit better. Yeah, it's probably better. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. We're really <laughs> scraping the bottom of the Bond Beatles barrel now. Oh, fair enough. And uh, in which case, we should probably leave it there. I hope if you've been listening to this, you've enjoyed the episode and you've enjoyed all of our Bond trivia facts and that you've enjoyed listening to Neil, our resident Bond expert. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on to our podcast, Neil. Thank you for having me. This is the best podcast I have ever been on. Good, good. I wasn't expecting that. (laughs) (laughs) Generally wasn't expecting that, but I'll take it. Thank you very much. Um, Do you agree? Is this the best podcast that Neil has ever been on? (laughs) If so, let us know. You can reach us on all of the usual social media platforms at Beatles Films Pod. You can also leave us a review or a five-star rating on your podcast listening platform of choice. Otherwise, we will see you again soon for another bonus episode, and we'll see you then. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye. Bye-bye. Goodbye.